Coming to you from the middle of the country, a new voice in politics, a show that is breaking away from the two-party system. In the Middle, with your host, Justin Staten. Good Wednesday morning, everybody, my wonderful fellow Americans. Welcome to the show. Did you guys realize that as of this morning, if you are a U.S. taxpayer, your share of the federal debt is $246,867. Probably didn't realize that. Thank you, government. Uh, yeah, so I, I tracked the federal uh, debt clock, if you will, and uh, it's a pretty pretty cool thing to watch. It just keeps going up at like a tremendous pace. You guys can also check it out at usdebtclock.org. I, I usually do check it every morning because I want to see what my share of the, the federal debt has gotten to. And as of today, it's $246,867. So if if you are a taxpayer, meaning you have to file a tax form every year, 1040, and you pay tax, your share is $246,867. Little tidbit, a little additional tidbit of information. If you didn't know, not everybody in America pays tax. So that's only roughly about 50% of the population. So yeah, I just thought that'd be an interesting tidbit for you guys to know. I, I check it every morning and it, and it always blows my mind. We're also at $31 trillion of debt. Now, I believe we can still pull out of that. It will be a tall order and we're going to have to start making some serious changes now. But it's a lot of debt, and it it could end up becoming a severe problem for us. Also, thank you guys. The results are in. The feedback has been wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing the show and providing some feedback. It means the world to me. I take that feedback seriously, and it will only make the show better. Some of the feedback that you guys gave, I'd like to share real quick. I, th- I think it was really good. Uh, one, be more specific about what the show is about. I think that's good feedback, and I agree. Uh, so somebody also mentioned having guests on from all political sp- perspectives. Uh, so, yeah, so let's start with the first one. Be more specific about what the show is about. So this show is trying to break down the the extreme political ideations or uh, ideologues. I think what's happened is... A, I don't. I believe there's a uniparty in Washington D.C. I know we have a Democrat party and a Republican party, but I believe it's just one uniparty, one elitist class that really has no interest in fixing problems for America. And there's so much proof for that. I proof of that. You know, thirty-one trillion dollars of debt. That's a lot of proof. We're sending a hundred billion dollars uh, up to this point to Ukraine because we can't seem to stop fighting endless wars. And that's really for the industrial war complex. See, we we have we created a political class system whereby they're incentivized to do things for people who donate money. And there are no laws in place to prevent that from happening. We don't have term limits. We don't have laws that prevent corporate uh, corporations from donating. And I think this is all caused most of the problems that we have in America. So the whole point of the show is to break that down. I don't I believe in limited government. I believe the government is was created for a common common core of services and to protect our rights and freedoms and nothing more. And 
you know, over the last 50, 60, 70 years, the, the government is just bloated into something that's almost unrecognizable with two parties that could care less about Americans. We all see it. We all know it's the case. I also don't like the idea that they raise money from us to only turn around and dictate the worst of terms to us, the American people. And by them, I mean the, the political parties. So I want to dismantle that. And I, the other thing I, I, that they do that drives me crazy and the reason that this show exists is that they, on purpose, with their messaging and the media and, and when they get on TV and talk, with this messaging, they, they split the country in half. And you can see now we are, we are divided. We are polarized. Yeah, they tried to divide us uh, amongst race, religion, and many other things. And and it, you know, divided, we will fall. United, we can stand. And and so I just believe in a better version of America, one that we follow common core principles, which we're going to talk about today on today's show. And I don't believe in this polarization. You know, this country is a melting pot. So I mean, we're made up of immigrants from all around the world. So why would we divide ourselves and allow these political parties to divide us amongst all of our differences? We're a melting pot country. What makes us unique and what makes us great is that we're all different and that we all bring different perspectives to the, to the table. The founding fathers kind of knew this. And I said this in a previous episode. I think it's worth repeating again. I, I believe in my thought process is, is that the forefathers didn't always have the courage to do the right thing when they were creating America and drafting our constitution. They didn't, they didn't always have the courage to do the right thing in the beginning, but they had the foresight. They had the right foresight. They created a, a good document that gave us, the future generations, the ability to make America better and to progress as a country, as a country of immigrants from all over the world. So this, this show is trying to tear down the, the ideologies of the two-party system, the logic of the two-party systems, the polarization of the two-party systems, and the swamp in D.C. and the politicians basically using their allegiance to those parties over the American people to be ineffective and, and simply feckle. And if you're anything like me, you're, you're tired of it. So I wanted to lend my voice to that to help you sift through all the garbage and, and hopefully create a movement where we can start tearing these walls down because it is, it is an artificial division, if you will. And it's driving me crazy. The other thing that somebody said was, you know, have guests on the show from all political perspectives. And I should have done a better job of explaining the different formats of the show because you will, you will see different formats on the show. The, the, the first format is this type of format where it's just me talking about current events, giving you my insight and in, in what I think is true and what I believe to be true based off of the facts as I have them in the moment. I think you have to develop a an ability to read between the lines and see the patterns in their lies and deception. And and just for the record, if you're one of those people out there that still believe our government actually tells us the truth, that politicians are by nature honest, you have to wake up. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you are living 
in La La Land, in a make-believe world, by nature, they are not honest. And I think the more that you pay attention, and, and they don't want us to, right? They want to keep us, that's part of why they keep us divided is so that we don't pay attention. It's why there's so much emphasis on Hollywood and, or Hollyweird, whatever you want to call it. So much emphasis on movies and TV and sports and all this stuff. It's to keep us distracted so we don't pay attention and we have to start paying attention. But yeah, your politicians are not honest. So that's the first format of the show is for me to come out and talk about current events, talk about what's real, right? Bridging the gap between politics and reality and just catching up on stories that aren't being well disseminated because they're not being well disseminated for a reason. It's usually because it's something they screwed up or something they don't want you to know about or a slow erosion of your freedoms, which are not a good thing. So that's the first format. The second format is an interview format. And I plan on bringing people on the show from all walks of life with all different political perspectives. So that's everyday people, that's business owners. We will talk to some politicians. And you will see that. That 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 is an additional format to the show. And, and I think it's one you're going to really enjoy. There's a, a third format, and that format is an educational format. I believe a lot of us have just... You know, some of us fell asleep in, in civics and history and, and you know, we, we don't really know how everything works or the context of the history or why things happen the way they, they did. And that's a shame. And that's why we have so much craziness out there right now and so many different beliefs because a lot of people don't realize, you know, they just simply don't understand why things are the way they are. They don't understand why things went down the way they did in our history. And I believe, like I said in a previous episode, it, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, guys. We can we can say that we're proud of our heritage to be Americans, but not be proud of every single flaw and every single bad thing that has happened in our history. It's, it's how you learn. It's how you learn. You know, in future generations made America better. And that's something we should all be proud of. We've made progress. And I, unfortunately, I think we're to a point where we're no longer making progress as a country. We're digressing as a country and we're going backwards. And, and I really hate that. So the other piece of the show will be education, where we're going to talk about things like the Constitution and the Federalist Papers and all the debate that went around actually making America. And, and a lot of people don't even understand or know that for example, a lot of the founding fathers wanted to abolish slavery in the Constitution. And a lot of people, you'll hear them say, well, America was founded on racist principles. No, America was founded on freedom principles. And there is a difference. Because if you read the Declaration of Independence, if you read the Constitution, America was founded with freedom principles, freedom for all that's why I say often the founding fathers didn't have the courage to do the right thing because they were faced with a difficult decision. Blow up this brand new experiment, this brand new idea before it even gets started or abolish slavery. I think they should have rolled the dice and abolished slavery when they founded the country. They chose a different direction, but they gave us the ability to change it. And we did. And so that educational piece is so important. So those will be uh, separate episodes, and you'll be able to see wherever you're watching 
or listening to these episodes, I will designate them differently. So the, the regular episodes will just be an episode by, followed by the number. If it's an interview, it'll be, you know, episode number, but it'll say interview with, and then you'll know it's an interview show. And then the ed- educational piece will be episode followed by edu, and then the the title of that episode for the educational piece. So great feedback, guys. I, I really appreciate it, and please keep it coming. I I, I really want to get this show out there, and I and I want it to be good, and I want it to be worth your time, and I want it to bring value to you. So please keep giving me feedback, so I know what the best value proposition is for you. Uh, so let's let's kind of get going on with the show. So, you know, I am going to talk a little bit about, I talked about it in the opening, but extreme political ideologies and why they impede progress in America. Also, have you heard of a congressman named Thomas Massey? Probably not, but you should have because we need more representatives like Thomas Massey. And I love the bill that he just presented to Congress. It's kind of savage. And we need more representatives like this that that will take big swings like, Thomas Massey is in Congress. And if I can get him on the show, I will. You know, I, I've mentioned before, like he was one of those congressmen that you don't hear much about. He doesn't doesn't get good committee assignments and so on and so forth. There's a reason for it. That's because he doesn't play the game. He doesn't play the political party game. Also got an update on the journalist arrested trying to exercise his First Amendment right. Mike Dewine actually has an opinion on what should happen next. Yeah, I said on yesterday's show, I, I think Mike Dewine, if he's serious about the fact that his this journalist's First Amendment rights were violated, which they were, and I hope you guys saw the video, then these these police officers, sheriff's deputies, whatever, state troopers sh- should not have a job. They should not be patrolling. They should not be enforcing the law. So I'm going to let you know what Mike DeWine's idea of what should happen next. Also, we're going to have a little update on East Palestine, Ohio, and the environmental disaster that's going on up there. Uh, Pete Buttigieg finally said something. He put out a tweet, which, you know, great. I'm glad he showed up. But it what, what, what still drives me crazy is the, the slow to no response. I mean, where's Joe Biden at right now? Has anybody even heard from him since the State of the Union? I think he went out on one trip, and that's been about it. And he's been pretty quiet about this, hasn't hasn't addressed the nation on on the East Palestine environmental disaster. And guys, it is probably one of the worst environmental disasters that we have seen in a very long time. And it could end up being one of the worst in U.S. history. We don't know because we don't know how widespread this is going to go. But we've gotten zero response from the president. We've gotten zero briefings really from the White House, from 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 FEMA. That's it. The federal government has been pretty quiet. Uh, I say Mike DeWine has done a fairly good job of keeping the uh, people in Ohio up to date on what's going on. And for that, I I appreciate and I have a lot of differences and opinions of Mike DeWine, which I'll save for future episodes. But at least he's keeping the citizens of Ohio informed. So that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. But first, guys, share the show, please. Uh, You you did yesterday and it really made a difference and and I appreciate it. So if, if this show makes you think, makes you laugh, you learn something new, makes you cry, get you fired up, get you mad. Uh, even if you don't agree with me and and want to make that known, please, you know, share the show and, and leave comments, feedback, review. It will only make the show better. So I would greatly appreciate it. So let's get on with it. 
extreme political ideology 100% impedes progress in America. And that is a lot of the genesis for the show and why I get up bright and early every morning and, and record this and try to bring it to you because I think it has to stop and we've got to make a change and we've got to do better. And I believe we can do better. Extreme political ideology is the enemy of progress, guys. And we should not make it a part of our individual identity. And I think that is the biggest issue right now with political ideologies, at least the extreme ones, right? We all have political thoughts and ideas. I'm specifically referring to the extreme ones. And so what makes it extreme? In my estimation, what makes it extreme and what makes it dangerous and impedes progress is when somebody's political ideas become a part of their personal identity. And we shouldn't do that. You have to be very careful about what you make as your personal identity because things as humans, things that we make as our personal identity, it's who we are, are things that we will literally fight for, die for, kill for. And I think it's okay to have ideologies or beliefs that you're willing to die for and fight for. I mean, I think that's necessary to have a strong country. But it's the extreme ends of the political spectrum where it gets super dangerous because when you're when you have principles, right? Like like we've talked about on the show and we're going to talk about again here in a second, when you have principles to follow that are you know principles that everyone in the country that has this common goal of having freedom can share and and you'll die for those principles, that's good, but it doesn't put you on the opposite end of the political spectrum to the point where you won't compromise. And that's the problem that we see in America today is the extreme ends of these political ideologies, the far right and the far left have no compromise. And I, and I think that's where it gets dangerous is when it's a part of your identity, you're not willing to compromise. That's when bad stuff happens. It's not good. And, and I think that's where we're at in America today. And it's unfortunate. And I think our political system in, in Washington, D.C. is the heavy hand in creating this. And we can make the difference. we got to come away from the fringe, from the edges, guys. Because when you make a far right or far left ideology part of your identity, not only are you willing to be dangerous over it, meaning you're willing to fight for it and die for it, but you're also not willing to compromise. So your only two options when you're not willing to compromise is to fight for it or die for it. It's how civil wars start. So we need to come back off the fringe, off the sidelines. you got to open your mind. You cannot make a far left or a far right ideology part of who you are and your identity. We have to make freedom principles a part of our identity because freedom principles say, Hey, we have certain God-given rights that man cannot give or take away from us. That includes our government. We're willing to fight and die for those rights. But everything outside of those, it's up to the individual how they want to live their life. What they want to be. What they want to become. What they want to do with their lives. Whether they want to 
work for a company or start a business or have a family, not have a family. Everything outside of those common core freedom principles is just up to the individual. And everybody should respect that about that individuality. Everything outside of those common core freedom principles should be up to the individual to do whatever they want to do as long as what you're doing does not infringe upon your other fellow Americans' freedoms and principles. And that's how it should go. We shouldn't be telling people how how they should be or live or whatever because in America we're free. And if you notice, the only people out there screaming at the top of their lungs, besides me trying to get everybody back towards the center a little bit, right, back to logic and common sense, are the far right and the far left. They're, they're the most intolerant, which is ironical when you talk to far left liberals, because they're the party of tolerance, yet they are the least tolerant. Cancel culture has grown. And this is why I have a bigger disdain for Democrats and liberals because they created cancel culture and it was all part of political power. They just wanted to get more political party. That's where cancel culture has come from. And I believe liberals are easier to manipulate because I believe that liberals are more emotional people than conservatives typically are. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying liberals are bad people. I think liberals are some of the biggest hearted people in our society. They have the biggest hearts. They love. They love tremendously. You know, they they typically wear their emotions on their sleeves and they want the best for everybody. So I, you know, liberals are needed in our country. They're some of the biggest hearts that we have. They're some of the biggest caregivers that we have. But they're also the most emotional, typically. And when you're more emotional than you are logical, you're easily manipulated. You're easily manipulated into feeling bad about things. To include yourself. That's why I don't like the Democratic Party. Because they know this. They figured this out a long time ago. And they manipulate you, liberals. And they gaslight you. And you should be offended by that. They don't want you thinking for yourself. If they did, they wouldn't keep pounding these messages into your brain and manipulating you to feel bad and to virtue signal. And if you don't do this, you're, you're, not, you're not tolerant. But then they yell at you if, if, if you even ask a question. How's that for tolerance? So I feel bad for liberals in America, especially those of you that are beholden to the Democrat Party. They manipulate you. It is why I don't like the Democrat Party more so than I don't like the Republican Party. And if you're on the Republican side, don't, don't clap your hands yet. Because I don't like the Republican Party either. They just do less manipulation and gaslighting. They're less of the narcissist boyfriend or girlfriend in the relationship than the Democrats are. But I don't have a lot of good things to say about the Republicans either. But we need liberals. We need conservatives. We need libertarians. And we need to follow common core freedom principles. 
The way this country was set up and the way it was designed was for progress. So that people from all walks of life, all ideas, all faiths, religions, creeds, races could come together and progress as one. Even though we're all different, we could progress as one. These political parties have screwed all that up. Washington, D.C. has screwed all that up. They don't want us to see this. They don't want us to get this. Because if we do, they lose power. They lose money. And they don't want that. So, guys, we got to come off the the edge of these political extremes and these political ideologies. Because when we're out there, progress stops. We become rigid and closed-minded. We end up divided and polarized, where progress becomes quite literally impossible. And that is where we are today. And that is what we need to fix. So what are those common core principles? Well, that we can follow instead of following the extreme political ideologies. Well, there's some good news there because we're lucky. We're lucky because we have a set of really good guiding principles. They're called our civil rights. The rights given to us by our creator, again, whoever your creator is, these rights were given to you by your creator. And, and guess what? They're described and protected in the Constitution of the United States. They're already there for us. These are the common core freedom principles that we all need to be willing to live for, fight for, die for, and uphold and hold everybody accountable to these principles. So real quick, I just want to go over these. I don't know when the last time, I don't know the last time you heard these, but I, I just think it's important to talk about. I think it's very important to be reminded of what these are, because I think we do lose sight of them. So I'm going to go through them quickly. There will be an educational piece coming up where I'll dive more deep into each one. But for those of you that aren't aware, our amendments, the first 10 roughly, are our basic civil rights, our fundamental rights as Americans, our common core freedom principles. And so I want to go over these. Amendment 1. Amendment 1 says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the government can't have a religion, and it cannot prevent you, me, or anyone else from exercising their religion in any way we see fit or abridging the freedom of speech. We talked about that in a previous episode or of the press. The press needs to get better because they're not asking tough questions anymore or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's important. And on the educational episode, we're going to, we're going to dive in there. So, Altogether, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Amendment number two, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So for those of you on the gun argument, I know there are bad people out there. 
I know there have been mass shootings. They are horrible every single time. But what we have to understand in the, in the, the, the reality of the situation, there's reality, guys, and then there's politics, and then there's political ideations, extreme ideations. There's reality. It's horrible. But we don't have a gun problem in America. We have a moral problem in America. We have a people problem. We have a right to keep and bear arms, and that right shall not be infringed. And they weren't talking about hunting. The founding fathers, and I won't spend too much time on this because there will be a whole episode on this educational piece. But let me just tell you, the founding fathers were not talking about hunting. They were specifically giving the people the right to keep and bear arms because of the First Amendment and the rest of the amendments. The First Amendment gives us the freedom to say what we want and do what we want and tell our government the problems and redress them. And the second one is in case the first one doesn't work out. It's a common core principle. We don't need gun reform. We need moral reform. And we'll talk more about that in future episodes. I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. But amendment number three, no soldier. This is, this is an old-timey one, but <laughs> I just have a sneaking suspicion if we don't do what we need to do, this one could, could be relevant in the near future. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Amendment four. It's a big one. The right of the people to be the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by an oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized meaning they can't just come take your stuff look at your stuff read your stuff without a warrant where they have to swear an oath and affidavit that they believe you're a suspect suspect in a crime so you're allowed to tell these police officers, no, unless you've got a warrant. Hey, do you mind if I search your car? Yeah. Do you mind if I exercise my Fourth Amendment rights under the Constitution? That That's literally what you should be saying in, in a retort. Unless they have a warrant, guys. Can't come on your property, can't search your stuff. And that's all you got to say. If they say, do you mind, because that's an old cop trick, right? Do you mind if I, either way you answer, could go against you. So you just retort. You mind if I exercise my Fourth Amendment rights and say no? Anyway, moving on. Moving on. Amendment number five. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. That's the double jeopardy clause. Nor shall they be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against themselves, nor be deprived of, and this is important, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property 
without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Amendment number six. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy trial, speedy and public trial, by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So everybody has a right to defense. Everybody has a right to confront their accusers. Everybody has the right to have their own witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Amendment number seven, I like this one. In suits of common law where the value in controversy, or sorry, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States then according to the rules of common law. I like that one. Simply because it still says $20. That was, that was a big sum of money back then. But it's a very prevalent and relevant law today. All right, where were we? Uh, yeah, so that was seven. Let's go to eight. Exercise bail shall not be required. I'm sorry, geez, if I could read this morning, guys. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Amendment 9, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So let me read that one more time. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights, meaning, hey, because we've listed out these certain rights, and, and numbered them, right, and gave them an order that does not mean and should not be construed, or should not be construed, to deny or disparage others, meaning other rights, retained by the people. And that's important. I love Amendment 9. That's important because we have other rights that they're saying, just, just because we didn't, we, we put in certain rights and, and gave them an order, doesn't mean it's not to be construed as or to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. So just because it's not in there doesn't mean you can take it away from us. Amendment 10, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. I just think it's important. I hope that's helpful if you guys haven't heard those in a while. I just think that's important to be up to date on those and, and to remember those and remember what they are why they are, and how they apply to our everyday lives and our common core principles, the things all Americans should agree upon. All Americans should agree upon. 
And I, I, I want to spend just a, like a brief moment, and then we're going to move on to discuss the Ninth Amendment a little bit, a little bit more. This is important because this covers any other right we the people deem to be ours, or said another way, principles we deem to be ours and necessary for our collective society to function in peace and harmony. So what are some examples of this? Well, here's one, the right for parents to be the ultimate custodian and authority over their children, their children's medical decision, decisions, and their education, etc. You know, that's one thing that's not actually put in the Bill of Rights, right, in the Constitution. But that is an example of Amendment 9. Parents should have the ultimate authority and rights over their children. Meaning schools shouldn't be telling parents how to raise their kids. Doctors shouldn't be telling parents what to do with their children or trying to force things onto them. Another one would be our right to make our own health care decisions and to expect a reasonable amount of privacy in those decisions and a ton of respect from our government when we make our own medical decisions. And we should respect each other's own decisions. Another one, my favorite, the, the right to do business, right? The right to do what we want to do on a daily basis. The right to go buy property. The right to trade property and to create things and create new products and, and new services as free Americans do. That's what makes us unique and great. So these should be our guiding principles. We got to get off the fringe, guys. We got to step back away from extreme political ideologies because if you're willing to fight and die for it and you don't have any compromise and you're not willing to compromise on any of it, and you've got both sides feeling that way because they're that polar, that extreme. That's a recipe for disaster. And we don't have to go that far. So before I move on to talk about Congressman Thomas Massey, I just I, I just want to I want to put it out there. Hey, if you're a le- liberal Democrat on the far left, come off the edge. Open your mind. Number one, see that your party lies to you. They're the worst about it. They manipulate you. They gaslight you. And if you open your mind and you pay attention, you're going to see it and it's going to frustrate you. And it's okay. We will welcome you with open arms. Even if you called us names and said we were intolerant and bigots and racists and because that's, that's the words of the left and the liberals, right? True fascism. We'll welcome you with open arms. We need good liberals in America. So I ask you, please open your mind a little bit. Conservatives, far right conservatives. I'm asking you the same thing. We understand that you have values and those are good. We understand that you typically have strong religious and and, and Christian values. And that's good too. That's okay. But you can't be Miss Judgy Judgerson over there. On the right. And we need good conservatives in America. But we need you to come off the fringe. We need you to see that your party also doesn't lie as much as the Democrats. I'll give you that. They do lie. They lie. 
They lie too. I think they do it in lesser amounts, which, you know, they didn't set the bar super high. But your party is not honest either. Your party's all about business. It's a uniparty in Washington, D.C., and you have to wake up also and see that. You have to remember that in America, we're free. If somebody wants to marry somebody of the same sex, they have that right to do so. Why? Because of the common core of freedom principles I just talked about. We get everything listed in there, plus every other individual freedom, as long as it doesn't impose on somebody else's freedom. So if somebody wants to marry somebody of the same sex, they can. It's their business. It's their freedom to do so. If somebody wants to, was born a man but wants to be a woman, they can, as long as that doesn't infringe on anybody else's rights. And I do have a problem with, with men, biological men in women's sports because, gosh, the fe- feminist movement was for nothing if we allow that. It's, it's unfair, and unfair we should point out. When it's, the, when it's completely unfair, we should point it out. Outside of that, and again, that's an infringement, right? That's an infringement on somebody else's liberties and indiv- individuality, but as a collective. But if a man wants to be a woman or a woman wants to be a man, that's their right to do so. So people on the right, get over it. You don't get to dictate to everybody else what other people get to do with their lives. You don't have to agree with it, whether it be spiritually or from a religious standpoint. You don't have to agree with it. But it's America. We have the right to do what we want. So I'm putting a general call out. If you're on the far left or far right, come come over to the middle a little bit. Come over with us. We, the middle. Let's, let's start making this country better. Let's start progressing economically and educationally. Let's start, let's start making a difference. Stop fighting and bickering. Let's get the swamp drained in Washington, D.C. Anyway, that's my call. Let's move on to uh, Thomas Massey, the congressman from Kentucky. Have you guys heard of him? Probably not. There's a good, good possibility you have not heard of Thomas Massey. Kind of like I mentioned in the first episode and at the top of this show, there's, there's a reason why. It's because he doesn't play the games. He doesn't play the uniparty games. He doesn't play the games of the the Republican Party. He is a Republican congressman. He gets he doesn't get the glorious committee chairman jobs. He doesn't even get the best office, and he's typically sitting in the back uh, when they're in session because that's that's the seat they give the people they deem unimportant. He doesn't work the fundraising phone banks in D.C. for the Republican Party. That's a real thing, by the way. They have to go every so often, and whoever raises the most money gets the most perks. <laughs> what? Yeah, true. True story. But Thomas Massey, Congressman Massey, doesn't play those games. And we need more representatives like Thomas Massey. So if you're a U.S. congressman or congresswoman, be like Thomas. Stop being the the political money machine and selling out to political interests and corporate interests and be like Thomas Massey. Guy's been there for what, 10 years? I think he first got elected in 2012. And I'm pretty sure his office is still in the basement, if that tells you anything. But he just doesn't want to sell out to the corporate interests and to the political party. He ran as a Republican because you got to pick one, right, if you want to get elected. I get that. 
We've kind of talked about that. But he doesn't play the game. Well, anyway, that's Thomas Massey, guy. We need more reps like Thomas Massey. But the reason I'm bringing him up, not only is he what every representative should be like, and I'll bet you money Thomas Massey, and I should have checked this before the show. I'll bet you money Thomas Massey is for term limits too, which, which we need in Congress. But I bring Thomas Massey up today because he introduced a bill that I think is savage. And even though I don't think it's going to go anywhere, I think I don't think he did it as like political theater because he's just not the political theater type. But I don't think it's going to go anywhere because it's a it would eliminate a department, another bureaucracy, and you know the the swamp doesn't like that. And so I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. However, he does have twenty sponsors to this bill already, which is actually kind of promising. Like something could happen here. I just I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But the bill is HR eight ninety nine, guys, and this bill is to terminate the Department of Education. To terminate the Department of Education. Like, literally get rid of it. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, and that's, that's why I like it. It's savage. It's sending a big signal that if you are inept, feckle, have no use, inefficient, you should go away. And so his argument is, A, one, there, there is no constitutional authority for this federal bureaucracy to exist. We just created it to create bigger government. And there is no reason the states shouldn't be fully responsible for educating their citizens. That should be left to the states. And I don't actually disagree with him. I don't disagree with him at all. I think the states should be the ones taking care of education, totally responsible for education amongst their citizens. We currently give about $96 billion, $98 billion roughly. Somebody can check me on the math to the education department every year. And any more, I don't, I don't know what they're doing except doling out money to programs that don't actually fix our education problem. And if, and if you don't think education is on, in decline in America, you're, you're smoking dope or something. I don't know. Because it is. And guys, this is... My wife is a school teacher. She's an educator. So, you know, I, you know I mean this if I'm willing to say this. My wife listens to the show. She's an educator. She will also admit education is on the decline. There are still good teachers out there, but there are a lot of bad ones. And with the teachers' unions, and they can't get rid of them. They're, they're not doing a job recruiting good, solid teachers. And they have all these standards now. Like, and, and I don't mean standards like in a good way, like, hey, meet the standards. Like, I mean testing and all these all these administrative things that actually take them away from teaching and spending time educating. And all the new reporting that exists. And it it's a mess. It's taking their time, these the good teachers at least, away from teaching. And I'll challenge anyone out there, if you if you think the Department of Education has made a difference in educating America, bring me the data. Show me. Show me how the Department of Education has made a significant difference in our education system in America. They haven't. 
You know, actually, I think it was the uh, Brookings Institute put out an article. Yeah, I think it was the Brookings Institute put out an article uh, where they, and it's an older article. It's like 2016, 2017 article, but where they talked about the declining productivity of education because you can't measure education guys based off of how many more people have degrees now than did 20 years ago. That that mean that's meaningless because if you can pay the fee and get the C, that's just a rubber stamp. You can pay for that piece of paper. It doesn't mean you learned anything. More kids going to school doesn't mean they learned anything. And that's those are typically the stats that we see out there. Th- those are irrelevant stats. Because what needs to be measured is how much more do people know now from an educational standpoint than they did X amount of years ago, whether that be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years, 40, 50 years ago. That's how you measure productivity of education. Is it productive? And Brookings, they put out an article, Jonathan Rothwell put out an article basically spelling out and kind of framing in a very easy to read and understand way the decline of productivity and and I'll go into that a little bit and kind of share some of it with you and one of the things that he says in this article is education costs have soared so college tuition net of subsidies is 11.1 times higher in 2015 than in 1980 and again this is a somewhat older article when I was kind of looking at all the research this one just fascinated me because uh, one, the data hasn't changed much since 2016, guys. Hate hate to be the bearer of bad news. It has not shifted in a positive direction since then. Uh, and it's eerie because some of, some of the things written in here, it sounds like it's present day still. But I, I do know that the data has not shifted, guys. We have not gotten marginally better in the last five years, four years. Um, even under Trump, our education systems didn't get marginally better in the last four to five years. So we should just... We should be thinking about getting rid of things that don't work, and the Department of Education is one of those. But he said college tuition net of subsidies is 11.1 times higher in 2015 than in 1980, dramatically higher than the 2.5 increase in overall personal consumption over the period. For private education from pre-K through secondary, prices are 8.5 times higher now than in 1980. For public schools, the rise is lower, 4.8. Seven from 1980 to 2013, but still far above general inflation. So what he's talking about there is educational costs have soared. So the costs to educate have soared. So he's saying we're, we're basically paying more, but learning has stagnated. So even though we're paying more and we're spending more to educate, learning has stagnated. For the nation's 17-year-olds, there have been no gains in literacy literacy since the National Assessment of Educational Progress began in 1971. Performance is somewhat better on math, but there has been no progress on math since 1990. The long-term stagnation cannot be attributed to racial or ethnic differences in the U.S. population. Literacy scores for white students peaked in 1975. In math, scores peaked in the early 1990s. Because, and the point he's trying to make here is because what a lot of people say is, well, there's still, you know, there's there's still this racial or ethnic divide or difference in education. And, and I won't disagree that there, that there are predominantly 
uh, poorer areas with minorities. We, I th- we all know that. It's not a secret. And yes, they are disadvantaged because of how most schools are funded with property tax values. So I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. This is productivity and learning across the board is what we're talking about here. And, he, and we've already he's already shown how even though the price of educating has gone up and the costs have gone up, learning has not. The, the amount that is learned or how much people know has actually not proportionally gone up to the amount of spending. And it can't be attributed to racial or ethnic differences because, and he just specifically points out white students, because what he's trying to say there is, see, look, if, if it was a proportional thing where like it was, well, black kids are very low or, you know, Hispanic kids are very low or Chinese kids, Chinese kids are more than likely the highest. But what he's trying to say is, is it's not about that. It's not like this economical or socio uh, racial or ethnic difference, guys. He's saying even white kids, even the white kids peaked in 1975 in literacy and in math, the early 1900s. And he points out some other interesting things in here as well. So he's he's talking about international literacy and numeracy data. Um, and he says assessment of adult skills confirms a very troubling picture when it comes to literacy and numeracy data. The numeracy and literally literacy skills, I'll get it right, guys, I promise. Literacy skills of those born since 1980 are no more developed than for those born between 1968 and 1977. So the numeracy and literacy skills of those born since 1980, I was born in 81, guys, are no more developed meaning our, our math, our numbers, math, right, numeracy, and literacy, reading, are no more developed than, than for those that were born in 1968, 1977, through 1968, 1977. For the average country that was looked at, by contrast, people born between 1978 and 1987 score significantly better than all previous generations. Huh. So those of you born between 78 and 87, we're, we're, we're better than other generations, but we stagnated then. And it, he goes on to compare the oldest, those born from 47 to 57 in this study, to the youngest co- cohorts, those born from 1988 to 1996. And the U.S. gains are especially weak in that cohort. The United States at this time had ranked dead last among 26 countries tested on math gains and second to last on literacy gains across those generations. The countries which have made the largest math gains include South Korea, Slovenia, France, Poland, Finland, and the Netherlands. And guys, I did see a study the other day that said we are still ranking almost dead last in the world in literacy and math. And according to this article that Brookings did and this, the study that they looked at, we peaked in the 1970s and 19, early 1990s. They go on to say, well, what, what's the source of this educational failure? Well, they surmise that for higher education, a major factor driving up costs has been a growth in the number of highly paid non-teaching professionals. In 1988, for every 100 full-time equivalent students, 
there were on there were on average 23 college employees. By 2012, that number had increased to 31 employees, with a shift toward the highest paying non-teaching occupations. Managers and professionals now outnumber faculty who comprise just a third of higher education workforce. They've got a lot of administrators, less teachers. Spending more money on administrators than teachers. And then they go on to say, to a large extent, rising costs have been absorbed by increased student borrowing, subsidized by the federal government and supplemented through grant aid. And unfortunately, as my report shows, federal loans have increasingly gone to the worst performing colleges from the perspective of default rates, which, guys, the Department of Education has a say in this stuff. Performing colleges from the perspective of default rates, which is consistent with Brookings research showing the rising prevalence of for-profit colleges as aid recipients. In primary and secondary public education, where price increases have been less dramatic, there has been a decline in bureaucratic efficiency. The number of students for every district-level administrator fell from 519 in 1980 to 365 in 2012. Principals and assistant principals managed 382 students in 1980, but only 294 in 2012. An even bigger problem, perhaps, is that teaching itself has become increasingly unattractive. Salaries for teachers start low relative to the education that they require and never get particularly competitive. School systems also impose frustrating daily constraints upon teachers, often in the form of mandatory administrative exams required by school, districts, states, and federal bureaucracies, namely the Department of Education. This burden combined with weak pay has deterred many top students from entering teaching and driven many others out. I just thought that was interesting, and I do think it's on the decline. I, I think, like most other things, it's schools and whether that be secondary schools, colleges, universities are getting heavily on admin, and, and they're spending more. The The last budget Biden just did, I mean, I think it's somewhere around uh, $4 billion, or between $1 and $4 billion is going to schools to bring on additional non-teaching staff, more nurses, counselors, and administrators. It's ridiculous, guys. We need more educators. They need less administrative tasks and duties. They just need to be able to teach our kids. So I like that Steve Massey is trying to knock out the Department of Education. I'd be interested in what you think too, but I love it. I think it's savage. If something is inefficient, feckle, whatever, incompetent as a department or as a bureaucracy, eliminate it. Let's get rid of it. If it doesn't work, let's get rid of it. I hope I can get uh, Congressman Massey on the show at some point. That would be that would be awesome. I think it'd be good to, for you guys to hear how much he really does not care for party politics. And so I'll work on that and see if I can uh, get him on here. But go ahead, knock down the the uh, Department of Education. I I will not lose an ounce of sleep over that. So to finish up the show, guys, I just wanted to give you a quick update on. On this reporter, I, I I made a pretty bold statement that on this reporter up in East Palestine for Newsmax that got arrested for exercising his first First Amendment rights, 
And I had a pretty bold stance on that yesterday. I stand by my stance um, that these individuals should be fired. And I made the comment that if Mike DeWine was serious, because he said, to his credit, he said, no, no, that's wrong. What happened was wrong. Should have never happened. Well, he was asked about that in a press conference uh, yesterday, I believe, or the day before. I don't know the exact date of the press conference, but he was asked about it. Like, hey, what do you think should happen next? And I want to play that for you. Uh, I, 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 I think it's obvious that nothing is going to happen to the police officers, sheriff's deputies, and state troopers, and the general who, who thought he could tell a civilian journalist what to do. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, I don't think anything's going to happen to him. So I'm going to play that for you. And uh, just, I don't know, let you listen. Take a listen. Uh, you were not necessarily looking at any sort of action regarding um, the adjutant general and the reporter who was arrested. Is there going to be any, anything after this? Well, as you know, this matter is turned over by the local county prosecutor uh, to the attorney general. Uh, I remain, uh, I have the same opinion I had the first day, and that is that um, I would hope that charges would be dropped. Um, I think that would be the best thing. Uh, you know, I, whatever happened after the general walked away, um, the reality is that the reporter should not have been stopped, period. So it shouldn't even started that way. Uh, and I, I understand, you know, People may have different feelings about what happened afterwards, but the initial, the initial stop, the initial confrontation, or the initial uh, contact uh, never should have occurred. So uh, taking that into consideration, it seems to me that uh, everyone would be better off if we just, uh, you know, if, if the uh, Attorney General could see fit uh, not to proceed with any kind of uh, prosecution. Have you talked to the Attorney General about the initial confrontation? Yes. Yes. Uh, look, I, I think I think the uh, the, the general, uh, you know, regrets that. Um, you know, I explained to him, you know, how press conferences work, and that frankly, that sometimes during a live press conference, someone will will uh, be reporting directly. Uh, someone could be right now standing back there and reporting if they wanted to. You know, and that's the, they have the right to, they have the right to deliver the news however they want to deliver the news. So yes, we've had a, we've had a conversation tonight, and he you know look he, he regressed the whole situation. So yeah, so there you have it. Everyone would be better off if the attorney general could just see fit to you know drop the charges. Let's uh, uh make it go away. Basically, the translation there is no, nothing's going to happen to the general. Nothing's going to happen to the state troopers that also went back there with him to tell uh, this journalist, to Evan Lambert, to to cut his feed. Nothing's going to happen. That That's the translation there. And Evan Lambert, I, I hope you sue them. You know, if, if they're not going to take administrative action on these these police officers in, in, for literally violating your rights, um, you've at least got a good civil rights case against them. And I think it's open and shut. So that's the... Uh, that's the word from Governor DeWine. Nothing, there will be no recourse. But they feel bad. They feel really, and they should. Like, I'm sorry, not sorry. You should feel bad. You had no right to do what you did. But I guess feeling bad is good enough. Accountability, right? Probably not. It'll happen again in the future. Mark my words. If you don't make examples of these people now, 
they will do it again in the future. And a quick update on the East Palestine environmental debacle. What a clown show. The federal government has turned this into. It's just unacceptable. You know, Pete Buttigieg, and I'm not even going to read it because I'm not even going to get it credit. The guy can barely show up for work. Um, finally put out a Twitter statement talking, you know, that, oh, I, I'm constantly thinking about, no, you're not. You're not constantly thinking about the, the citizens of East Palestine, Ohio. Sounds like FEMA's finally, though, on the ground, or at least a couple representatives of FEMA. Uh, I still don't, I haven't heard if there's any Red Cross or anything. And, and, uh, guys, this is, this is horrible. And, and then I'm not going to belabor the point, you know, what the citizens are going through up there is ridiculous. What, you know, they're not even being given a surety that the air is clean and that the water is safe to drink. It's, it's a bunch of, you know, talking out of the sides of their mouth and the federal government just seems super inept and it, and it just chaps my ass that, that they, they can't even all, where are all these climate activists? You know, Biden, where are you at, buddy? Now, where are, the, where are all these people? AOC, where are you at? It just goes to show they're full of crap, guys. They don't care about the environment. They care about you buying solar panels and wind turbines and putting, putting solar panel farms up because that's their special interest. That's where they make the money. You need any more proof than having... How many, how many environmental disasters have we had in just the last week with, with simply train car derailments just there not to mention the whales there was another one yesterday washed up on shore in the northeast not to mention the whales dying in the hundreds on the east coast right now where they're trying to build wind turbine farms out in the ocean just just train car derailments four i think two of which citizens had to be evacuated i mean i got a lot of questions a lot of questions about why we have so many train derailments i mean didn't Joe Biden just say in the State of the Union, uh, make a comment about the billions of dollars they're spending on infrastructure? Where? Where's the money going, Joe? Well, we're going to tell you guys where the money's going. I'm trying to put all the details together so I can tell you specifically where all the money's going. But it's not going to infrastructure, clearly. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a, all these train derailments. So just really disappointed, and I just think it shows how hypocritical hypocritical everybody is. But, guys, I am out of time, and I've got to run. Got to get moving on with my day. I hope you have a wonderful day. And please, again, share the show. Leave me some feedback and some reviews. It, it's really helpful. It will make the show better, and it will help other people find the show. Uh, so leave me some comments. Uh, tell me what you like, what you don't like, and I'll keep making it better. So I will be back with you guys tomorrow morning. And until then, have a great American day.